series where I'm inviting those of you who are not members of the church to become members. The series is called An Invitation to Membership. Last week, I started inviting you to membership by clearly explaining um, some central theological convictions of this church and the commitments which flow out of it. Last week, we began with the fundamental conviction of this church, which is the gospel, and that the gospel is our unifying principle. And we believe that God will take over the earth with the gospel. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. The gospel being the good news that God has acted through Jesus Christ, his life, death, his resurrection, and his current exaltation and reign to reconcile man to God and to make all things new. That is the gospel that requires our response of repentance and faith and obedience and that is the means through which God is redeeming the world. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And so that is our unifying principle. That's why we exist as a church. And we're going to lead with the gospel. We don't dress up in camouflage as a church. That's not going to be, that's not going to be our goal. It has never been and will never be moving forward. But it is to present clearly Christ. Him we proclaim. Clear the, the open statement of truth the Apostle Paul talks about. And that's what our aim is at this church. Today, we're going on to another central theological conviction. And it's, if the gospel brings us together, what regulates us as a church? What moves us forward as a church? Yes, we're unified by the gospel. That's what brings us together. But how do we move forward in making disciples of Christ? That's what's really on my mind today. We got in here together because of Christ Jesus. But now, how do we move forward as making disciples? Because that is the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded. I, I, am, I am basing this principle of this conviction, this sermon, under the idea that discipleship is more taught than caught. It's not more caught than taught. I believe discipleship is more taught than it is caught. And so what I am going to suggest today is that disciple making in this church is going to be intentional and deliberate. We're going to have an intentional approach to Christian formation through a deliberate and systematic instruction of Christian truth delivered from the scriptures. That's my, that's my theme today. Discipleship is more taught than it is caught. How are we teaching? Obviously, we're teaching the word of God. That's how we're making disciples. We're clearly teaching the truths that derive from scripture. I'm going to get to kind of unpack this as we move along. But I would like to begin by noting that throughout history, both redemptive history and church history, God has breathed spiritual vitality into his people when they deliberately return to and embrace the word of God, the scriptures. 
What I would like you to do, if you have your Bibles, is to turn to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. Um, tells us about the reign of an evil king in Israel named Manasseh. He was perhaps the most rebellious king um, that ever ruled. He was wicked and evil, and he systematically deconstructed everything that God has said and put forward in the law. I'd like you to read, I'd like to read you his resume and just walk through the wickedness of this king, Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old, verse 1, when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, pause there just for a minute. We have presidents that reign four years, and people feel like it's a long, drawn-out time, and they want something new. Imagine, uh, yeah, one year. Imagine a king, a wicked king, reigning for 55 years. I mean, by the, if he came in when you were 20, you'd be 75 years old at the end of his reign. What did Manasseh do? Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Manasseh built altars to false gods intentionally. Verse 3, he, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab the, king, the, Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And Asherah was like a tall totem pole where people would inscribe strange drawings of, of nature and then worship that totem pole. He sacrificed his son to Molech, verse 6. He burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He instituted male cult prostitution in Israel, where if you went into the temple, one of the ways you would worship, or you could worship, is through a male prostitute. He shed innocent blood, verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh sh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem for one, from one end to the other, besides the sin he had made in Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he reigned for 55 years, deconstruct, making Yahweh one of many gods. In verse, uh, going back up to verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord. In the temple, he put up these things. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he was putting the names of other gods. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts, verse 5, of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons, and he did much evil. All this for 55 years 
wickedness and debauchery and nothing but his entire reign was, was contrary to the law of God, which God had given him. So he was systematically dethroning God for his whole reign, it seems, or for most of his reign. It was the rejection of God's law together with the embrace of everything that seemed evil in the sight of the Lord that put Israel into some of the darkest days it had ever seen. Functionally, God was dethroned and scripture was completely forgotten at this time in Israel. That's the resume of Manasseh. And I, I think it's very, very interesting how similar some of the themes are today in our country. There is rank pluralism assumed, maybe even in the church. Uh, abortion. We still sacrifice children to Molech today through, abo- through abortion. And sec- the sexual identity is, is, and freedom is the new piety. It's the new religion. All of those themes are found in Second Kings 21. But there is good news because right after Manasseh reigns for 55 years, his son reigns for two years, and after this, one of the greatest kings in Israel history comes into reign, his name is Josiah. And Josiah, we read about his reign in verse in chapter 22. And he had in his heart to repair the temple of God. I love this guy. Because he, with resolve and almost a violent faith, sought to recapture what the Lord had given the people of God, the scriptures, and to do it, and to follow it, and to be faithful and careful in doing so. And extreme in doing so, even. So verse 5 of chapter 22, we're told that Josiah sent a secretary to the, temp- to the house of the Lord to get money to pay laborers who are making repairs on the temple. So he has it in his heart to repair the temple of God. And he sends a secretary to go in and get money so we can give to the workers to, to pay to rebuild this temple. And it turns out that the high priest goes in and finds the book of the law in the temple. In verse 8 of chapter 22, it says, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Stephan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to to Shephan, and he read it. That must have been all. Imagine... Imagine going to find the money in the house of the Lord to pay, for, to pay for repairs in an old, dusty scroll. Literally, it's the scroll of the Torah in the Hebrew. So the high priest finds the scroll of the Torah and maybe in an old, dusty loft in the secretary. And the book of the law is read to the king. And here's what chapter 22 says. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, Josiah tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Achim, the son of Shaphan, 
and Achor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asai the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that I have found. For great is the wrath of God that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed all the words of this book to do according to all that is written to us. And so they go and they gather the people of Israel. And Josiah reads the law to them and makes a covenant with the people of Israel to return to God with all of their heart and with all of their soul and to keep the commands of the Lord. In verse chapter 23, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the, before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined that covenant. That, that was a day of change when they found the book of the law and they recovenanted with God to be faithful and devoted followers of the word that he had given them. And they recovenanted to the Lord. And this is how Josiah carried out a deliberate and systematic reform of the people of God. He carried the... What did he carry? He carried out the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and the host of heaven, and he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields. So he took the idols and he burned them in the fields. He removed from office all the priests to the pagan deities in Israel. He brought out the Asherah, that big totem pole. He burned it, he beat it to dust, and he threw it in a graveyard. He destroyed the house of the male cult prostitutes. He destroyed the altar used for child sacrifice to Molech. He broke down the altars to pagan deities and beat the altars to dust. And he restored observance to Passover. And in verse 24 and 25, it says, Moreover, Josiah put away all the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Helkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Imagine the wicked reign of Messiah for 55 years, Manasseh for 55 years. Then Josiah comes in a dusty loft 
in the temple and finds the scroll of the law and recommits the people of God who for half a century had fallen into idolatry and debauchery and recovenanted with the Lord, beat the idols into dust, burned them, and threw them in the graveyard. That was a mighty Reformation Day in Israel. And it happened because they rediscovered God's word and they recommitted themselves to following that word faithfully with all of their heart and with all of their soul. Spiritual renewal happens throughout the Bible and throughout history when, when God's people return to the word with all of their heart. That I think we see in that story. But that's not, that's not the only time that something like that powerful has happened. About 500 years ago, well, when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus was calling men back to the heart of God, and he tells the Pharisees, you have a fine way of twisting God's commands to suit your tradition. And he was calling them back to the law of God. Yes, God allowed for divorce, but from the, divorce, but from the beginning it was not so. And Jesus was the incarnate word calling them back to the heart of the written word. 500 years ago, we had a great reformation that put an end to the spiritual abuses of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, 500 years ago, were selling indulgences, which was the way that you could literally pay for your forgiveness of sins and for the forgiveness of sins of other people. And one of these Dominican preachers named Johann Tetzel used to go around preaching as as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Meaning that you could buy a soul out of purgatory with this money. And it was a great abuse in the church. But there was a monk named Martin Luther who, reading the Bible, realized that forgiveness could not be purchased through the money of men. And repentance revolved not just penance, paying off sin, but repentance involved the turning of the entire self back to God. There's a turn from sin and a turn to God. And you could not earn forgiveness through a payment to avoid punishment, but through the tangible faith in Christ, the grieving of your sins, and the entire turning of the self to God in obedience and faith. And so, on Reformation Day, which we celebrate October 31st, by the way, which is also Halloween, Reformation Day, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and he had 95 points against the Catholic Church's teaching on repentance and, and the sale of indulgences. And he's pointing to Scripture to show this is not what the Scripture teaches. And that day marked the beginning of what was in a, a great reformation where the church, people were leaving the Catholic Church, turning to the Protestant Church because... They were going back to the word as their authority, not ecclesiastical authorities, but the scripture itself as the authority 
of God. I love this quote from Martin Luther. Reflecting, it was a letter that he wrote to a friend, reflecting on, on the Reformation. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that we should do everything that he says in this letter, but it, gets, it makes a point about the power of the word. Martin Luther says, I, imposed, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing, he says. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. So it wasn't necessarily a militant reactionary teaching, Luther is saying, but simply the shaping of God's people with God's word, simply teaching the word. Yes, in contradiction to the Catholic Church, but simply teaching what the Bible says. He says the word of God did everything. That is the sword of the Spirit. That's how the Spirit works. He uses the Word. So here's, my, here's the point I'm driving at, just from those two stories, Josiah and Luther and even Christ himself. Spiritual formation, I think, rests on people turning back to the Lord. God seems to breathe spiritual vitality and life into communities when they observe the word carefully and faithfully with a full heart to do what God has commanded. And so that's why we aim to be a word-driven church. And that's why we, we're, we want to be very careful about things like baptism and church discipline and biblical leadership it's not because I want to make mountains out of molehills. We don't want to do that. It's because we honestly believe that God breathes life into a community when we faithfully follow his commands. I think we've seen that throughout church history. We see that in the scripture. God breathes life and vitality into a people when they return back to the heart of God in the scriptures. And so today then, what we don't have great abuses like the Catholic Church did. We don't have a Manasseh ruling today. Yes, there, there, there is America does seem to be upside down. But we don't have these great abuses in the church today. What we have is, I think, a people suffering for lack of knowledge of the word. That's my assessment of the evangelical church. There are two reasons why I think this is happening. Number one, I think that most churches today, especially evangelical churches, want to do discipleship. They want to teach people to follow Christ, but their discipleship is geared towards spiritual infants. And there's almost nothing left over 
are nothing to grow into after you grow out of infanthood in the evangelical church by and large. So in the early 2000s, has everyone heard about the church Willow Creek? Okay, in the early 2000s, Willow Creek did a survey called the Reveal Survey. And in this survey, they wanted to see if their notion about how to develop disciples was actually working. And here's what one writer said about um, Willow Creek's survey, which they, I think they surveyed, if I remember right, 6,000 people. Three to 400 people that had left the church and they included three, three to five other big churches as well in this survey and wanted to see if people were becoming Christ-like by becoming involved in programs within the church. You know, maybe a date night in the church, helping out with date night, or maybe being on the cleaning team, or, or maybe being on the softball team, or, um, or, or helping in general church activities. Here's what one writer says about the Reveal survey. He says, Willow Creek had been assuming that, more, that the more a person far from God participates in church activities, the more likely it is that those activities will produce a person who loves God and loves others. However, this assumption was found to be invalid by the research. To quote the study, does increased attendance in ministry programs automatically equate to spiritual growth? To be brutally honest, it does not. Interestingly, the two factors which played into spiritual growth the most throughout the people that left and people that were even spiritual infants, the two factors that contributed to spiritual growth the most was not inclusion in activities or in programs or getting ingrained in the church or attendance even. The two activities... The two factors that contributed to spiritual growth the most was the study of the Bible and spiritual disciplines. Those two are what contributes to spiritual growth the most, according to this survey. So Bill Hybels, who was a pastor there, um, this is a quote from him. He says, we made a mistake. And I so respect Willow Creek for doing this. Actually, seeing if their strategy, getting them, the idea was get them involved in a Christian community, just being around. The notion was that discipleship is more caught than taught. And I think the research shows the opposite, that true discipleship is more taught than it is caught. So anyhow, with that said, having... Having said, I really respect the survey. Here's what Heibel says about the research. He said, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to say, take responsibility as self-feeders. We should have gotten people and then taught people. We should have taught them how to read their Bible between services 
and how to do spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. In other words, teaching the Bible and theology and how to read the Bible and then sending them home, expecting them to do the spiritual disciplines or what I like to call them the means of grace. How does God grow a person? We talked about this is why we've done for two years a spiritual growth campaign. Because I I always want to reiterate how God grows a person. Plants grow because there's dirt in the ground and because there's sun that shines on the plant and because water falls down and the plant assimilates that into itself and grows. So how does God grow a Christian? Through the Bible, by giving you the Holy Spirit with whom you can kill sin and live righteously, by giving you the Bible, which is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, right, Darcel? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Prayer. Do you need grace and mercy? I know I do. Hebrews says that we can go to the Lord through prayer and find grace and mercy in times of need. The collective body, Paul says, no one can say that I cannot say to the hand, I believe he says, I do not need you. So look around. You cannot say to the other person, I have no need of you. Stewardship of what you have, raising your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, using your money for his glory, using your talents and your resources and your experiences for the upbuilding of the church, and finally, kingdom work. How can you sacrifice for the Lord and spread the message of the gospel? That's how God grows a person, through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints, through stewardship of what he has, and through sacrifice for the kingdom and spreading of the gospel. That's how God grows a Christian. So, I think there are many churches like Willow Creek had lingering, lingering on basic principles. You know what Hebrews tells you? Six, Hebrews 6 one says, someone needs to teach you again, God bless you, the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says to these people that have been Christians for a long time. He says, by now you should be teachers. But someone needs to again teach you about the basics of repentance of sin from dead works of baptism and faith towards God. That is, that's my word for the evangelical church. By now, we should all be teachers. And so I think the church, evangelical church, does a pretty good job, although a lot of churches do a good job reaching out to spiritual infants and re- getting people in the door. But I believe that evangelical churches too much rely on milk and don't give enough meat. This is not, I don't mean to suggest that we should be giving complex theoretical theology and philosophical theology, although that might not be a bad idea once in a while. 
But what I am saying is really to know the Word of God, to know the Lord, to know the Scriptures, to get it ingrained within you, to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints. And so that's, that's what I think the church needs to be doing. A church needs to be doing. And that's what our church is aiming at. We are a word-driven church. So that's the first problem. I think the church, by and large, focuses on milk and spiritual infants rather than taking someone all the way from spiritual infanthood to spiritual manhood and womanhood and making that person a teacher and a somebody that you can look up to. Secondly, the second problem is I think that there's a lack of strategy in churches today. And I think people believe that discipleship is organic. That, yeah, you read your Bible a little bit, and, you know, you get in a community. And there is, there is some truth to that. But I think for the most part, there needs to be a deliberate and structured way of passing down Christian truth. Jude tells us, earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. Now, that entails at least the passing down of information, right? At least you're passing down information to the next generation if you're earnestly contending. Paul tells Timothy time and time again, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In Acts 2, like we read last week, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. So there is an information transfer involved in discipleship. Because discipleship involves the renewal of the mind. So this involves at least the transfer of information. Where we get that information is from Scripture. My, the thing I'm talking about is how we deliver and transfer that information. And I'm suggesting there needs to be a deliberate, more deliberate, more intentional way to disciple people in the church. So here's our strategy as a church going forward. And which has always been the strategy, but it's, it's, it's slow going because we're small. But as we, as we gain momentum, Lord willing, God will raise up people. And, um, and these things will, will, um, will glorify God as we do them. Um, what I want us to be in this church, as I invite those of you who are not members yet to be members... The vision, for lack of a better word, oh, I like that word. I don't like it when preachers talk about their vision. I think the biblical vision, a discipleship vision, is for us to be a community where a faithful, deliberate, structured plan for passing down Christian truth is present in our church. We need to have a plan for equipping the saints. And the way I'd, we are doing that is, I believe, a course-based approach to discipleship. 
a, for lack of a better, a course-based or a almost a class-like approach to discipleship. This is what I've been trying to get on the board Wednesday by teaching systematic theology. We've gone through the doctrine of, we're going through the doctrine of revelation. Now we're getting to, into the doctrine of God. And so the great, the great, what I, what I can see out in the future is we have three core courses that we put people through. One, basic Christian doctrine. Two, biblical theology, which is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And basic Christian doctrine is truths like Scripture, God, Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit. And then number three, the third core course would be spiritual formation. How, how to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And I just told you it's, it's those seven, I think it's seven, principles that God uses to grow people. The means of grace. And then I could, I could see elective courses like a year-long systematic theology, which we're going through. And maybe biblical marriage and family. And um, some other things sprinkled in there that we could roll out every once in a while. But the point is that these courses are structured and repeatable. And we go through them once every two years or so. And we raise up people to teach these courses. And so that's, that's my vision for you out there. You people. I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm hoping to look at people that can join this plan of a structured... I want to redeem Christian education as education as well through structured and deliberate learning about the scriptures. And that's why I'm excited about the women's, um, women's group coming up. Well, they'll be going through an overview of the Bible. Right now, in our church, we're at the infanthood stages where we're kind of developing these things and rolling them out. But I think that as we commit ourselves to them, the Lord will establish the work of our hands. So... When is that going to happen? That happens midweek. So this is the preaching of the word, where usually I exposit a sermon and I try to punch you with the gospel. Or I try to punch you with that. I'm, uh, Ezra 7.10 is always in my head. Ezra committed to know the scriptures, to do them, and to teach them in Israel. That's my job. So when I get here, on, on I'm trying to take the word, but not just teach it. I actually want to... I want punch you with it. I want, I want you to do it, you know? Yes, obviously, obviously, we're preaching grace and mercy in this church. But also, too, which I think is missing from a lot, a lot of preaching, is what do you do with grace once it's been given to you? Because grace is fuel. It's not just something that covers over your forgiveness, or over your sin. Grace is fuel. So, that's my vision. Like midweek course-based approach, which we are doing right now. We're starting that, getting that all on board on Wednesday. I can envision basic doctrine, biblical theology, spiritual formation, electives like systematic theology, marriage and family. 
and teaching that accords with godliness. What we're doing with the children coming up is we have four people, four women, who are going to help us lead the children's church. Um, and so I'm excited about that. It's going to be catechizing the children, and we're using a catechism which talks about God, the sin, Christ and salvation, and the Holy Spirit. And one of the questions in this catechism, for example, is what is your only hope in life and death? Answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. Another question is, how and why did God create us? Answer, he created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. How can we glorify God is another question. By loving him and obeying his commands and his law. Will God allow our idolatry and sin to go unpunished? Answer, no, God is righteously angry with our sin and will punish us, both in this life and in the life to come. Next question, is there any way to escape punishment and to be brought back to God? Yes, God reconciles us to himself through a redeemer, Jesus Christ. So this is a basic way where we can take and teach the kids the basic principles of the oracles of God. We're going to be starting that on the 28th. Please keep that in prayer. And, um, and I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a, a good way where we can instruct the kids in the faith. Sunday school. Remember Sunday school? Back in the 80s and 90s? That's what I'm talking about. That was the logic of Sunday school. Where you learned in a structured and deliberate way the things about God. Forming deep disciples. Because I believe that deep and rich discipleship is not just for seminary. Now I've been to seminary. I, I, lo I, I enjoy the study of God's word. But you shouldn't have to go to seminary in order to learn deep truth. Right? That should be taught in the church. I'm not saying there's no place for seminaries. But I, I am saying that the church, if you want to become a teacher of God's word, you shouldn't have to rely on some other institution outside of the church. So what we want to do is make robust, deep discipleships by redeeming something like a Sunday school in this church. Like Sunday school. Now, obviously... The Lord, we're going to wait on the Lord to give us a building, and we will do that patiently, trusting that he, he will bring us what we need, when we need it, and when he wants us to have it. Another point here I just want to say briefly is I'm talking about robust and deep theology and, and, um, and really being precise. But I think also, too, in this church and I've tried to model this as a pastor, is we need to have a biblically appropriate latitude in our convictions. So what I mean for that is there is room for disagreement on some things. 
So there is, I forget who, who talked about the four Ds, but there are doctrines to die over, there are doctrines to divide over, there are doctrines to debate, and there are things to decide. The four Ds. What are you going to die for? What are you going to divide over? What are you going to debate? And what are you going to decide? I think way too often in the evangelical church, people take a doctrine you need to debate and divide over it. Or take a doctrine you need to decide and die over it. I think we need to put those in place. So, as you know, I'm not necessarily your classic Calvinist, but I believe God is sovereign and and He is in control. Maybe maybe some disagree. Maybe I'm a maybe you say I'm a five pointer. Well, I want to lock arms with you because I believe God is in sovereign control of all things. I also believe He wants all people to be saved. But as long as you're coming out and evangelizing with me then functionally we're doing the same thing. Also, too, I want to debate you on that. And you shouldn't want to kill me over it. And I shouldn't want to kill you over it. I think that's just an example of, I think, something we can debate and not divide over. So I'm, I, I'm suggesting a, a biblically appropriate latitude for Christian convictions. Tell, debate, debate me. Tell me where I'm wrong about about some some doctrines, and I will change my mind if you show me from Scripture. I'll, I'll change my mind. I, there's a lot I'm learning. I, I realize. Listen, when I was twenty, when I was twenty seven, in seminary, I knew everything. I knew everything, and now I don't know anything. I feel like, and I've done a lot more study since then. So I, I realize that, that these are complex matters. But let's keep the main things the main things. God has acted through Christ to reconcile us. Christ died in atoning sin. He rose again. I'm, I'm going to die for that. Lord willing, by his grace, if a gun's in my head, I would die for that. If he gives me the grace to be strong in that moment, which I would ask him to do. There are doctrines to divide over. Next week, I'm going to talk about baptism, which is not, which is deeper than an issue. Ah, you should not baptize babies. You shouldn't baptize babies. The issue is who's the church, who belongs in the church, and what does baptism represent for those who belong in the church, and how has the covenant changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I'll teach you that next week. Um, why there is why there is a debate over that, um, but that's I don't know where I was going with this, but that that's a that's an example of something that has divided churches because yeah if you want me to baptize your baby I'm not looking at you intentionally Jeff but if you want me to baptize <laughs> your baby um, I'm not I'm not gonna, I don't do that because I'm a I'm baptistic in my theology so we'll talk about this but I wanna I just want to give you those four D's to show you that there is room for disagreement among the people of God. And if you find someone that agrees with you on every single fine point of doctrine, then wow, that's incredible.
All right. We are not fighting fundamentalists. We are biblically committed Christians. Although we do hold the fundamentals. So if you look up our statement of faith online, uh, Church of the Vine NY for New York.org. Church of the Vine NY.org. You can go down and under our beliefs, look at our statement of faith. It's it is simple and central. It keeps us simple and central the the core truths about God, the Trinity, Scripture being inspired, Christ's divinity, his death, his resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the church, the ordinances, and the fact that Christ is coming to redeem all things. So, that's another part of my invitation of membership for you, and that's the plan. Moving forward, if God should give us growth and the means to do this, the plan is to uh, continue to move forward by developing a course-like, an education-like approach to growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, where where discipleship is more taught than it is caught, but it's both. Now... This doesn't mean, really quick, before I close, this doesn't mean we're going to become brains on a stick as a church. I don't want to do that. I do do want us to be a knowledgeable church on the things of the Lord, but I don't want us to forego the other means of discipleship, which is service um, as well. So, I'm just, last, yes, last night I got a call from a pastor about a woman um, who is in, might be in need of help. She's moving into a place in Ellenville, and she is in need of help. She might, she, maybe we could get her some food, get her, help her get her set up in her apartment. I don't think she has any, um, she has nothing in her apartment right now. She does not know the Lord. So I think this might be a great opportunity for us as a church to come around this person, set them up, be salt and light, um, and, and do good for this person as a platform for the gospel. Now, she lives in Ellenville. I don't think she, she'll be going to our church necessarily, but this would be an opportunity to serve somebody without any benefit to us whatsoever. And I think that's a great kind of service. So, uh, more information on that will follow. I'm going to call her later, and um, I'll tell you what we can do for her. So, I just wanted to say that Our plan is to move forward through teaching the scripture, but we're also going to look for opportunities of being salt and light as well. We're not going to forego one for the other. We want both. So that's the plan. We're moving forward in making disciples through an intentional, deliberate, structured embrace of God's word. Why? Because as I see it, when people embrace God's word wholeheartedly with understanding God breathes life into those communities and I want to be a church where somebody mature in the faith can still grow can still grow and serve in their capacity so if this is something if this is a vision that 
you think the Lord is calling you, you to, I invite you to membership. By the way, membership involves, right now, is a simple process. It involves meeting with me, talking through your, your, um, your testimony and your beliefs, walking through our statement of faith and the church covenant, which is your promise to the church and the church's promise to you. And I want to put that front and center because we're covenanting, covenanting together as a church when we become members. Remember Acts 2 says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They did not loosely associate with the fellowship. So, invitation to membership. Let's close. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ the Lord, be glory and majesty and power and dominion now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen. And amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.